Welcome to another episode of The Working Title, hosted by PJ Harris. Right, Glenn, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Lima Charlie, PJ. Wonderful. So welcome to The Working Title. Welcome to uh, all the listeners. It's been a little bit of a break since I've uh, recorded one. Uh, a lot of the ones that have come up most recent have been pre-recorded. So um, Glenn's wonderful accent has brought me back into the world of wanting to record um, another podcast. So uh, give us a quick hello, Glenn. Just let the yeah. people hear what I'm talking about. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I just hope everyone can understand the accents. Yeah, and, and as we discussed off air, the bootneck slang that will probably come out mid-chat. Yeah. Try and try and keep it minimal. <laughs> okay, guys. So, Glenn Stein, this is going to be a good one. So, uh, I'm going to call this one our man in SA, so our man in South Africa. Um, that term is a bit loose because he spends a lot of time in not just South Africa, but the southern, um, southern sub-Saharan Africa and Africa in a total. Uh, he is a former Royal Marines commando, conservationist, anti-poaching consultant expedition leader and all-round hoofing bloke so he grew up in SA transitioned into the Royal Marines lived the dream uh, ended up back in his home country fighting the good fight protecting a wide range of animals so a great one to get into guys he's done a lot around that and a lot within uh, different challenges and fitness aspects that we, we're going to delve into as much as we can physically do so before uh, everyone gets bored of my voice, let's get your voice on. And uh, I gave you a little intro there. If you can just sort of broadly, briefly, just open up those uh, those different titles of conservationist, anti poaching, and expert leader, and just sort of give us a description of who you are and what you're doing now, really. Okay, thanks for the intro, PJ. I don't know how I'm going to follow that, but uh, yeah, as you said. Born and raised in South Africa, I grew up in Johannesburg, and then from there went to all boys boarding school. It's actually a British uh, Milner school. There's one of six in South Africa, and then uh, from after school went to the UK for a couple of years. Did the whole gap year thing, um, you know, boozing, chasing girls, putting on weight. Uh, then returned home, uh, got into like the fitness world or industry from there. And then got bored, got bored in the gyms, so I decided to join the core. And that was in, decided in 2009. And then planning started 2010, passed out 2011. And then, yeah, I was in the core for five years, left end of 2015. And then uh, from there, transitioned into private security, uh, mainly maritime, um, some close protection work in London. Nairobi, uh, small bits of Africa, and then from there, a couple of expeditions under the belt, and then into the anti-poaching conservation world. That's the short version. And can you believe you're only 106? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it I'm is feeling 21, but not in the knees, <laughs> not in the knees, not in the back. Yeah, knees, back, and ankles are shot, but in the yeah. heart, we're nice and young. Yeah, I remember PTI saying the age of your, to take the age of your knees to work it out is however many years you've been in the military times it by three and then add it onto your age. That's the actual age of your knees. So there you go. There All you the go. Military the guys first, that's the first knowledge bomb. <laughs> I always, uh, whenever I speak to uh, bootnecks especially, but any sort of like ex-military guys, uh, and girls it's always something that astounds me compared to mainly civvies really like the, the comparison between your say 10 15 years in life yeah. is the same as about four lifetimes to a normal human being um it's just mad yeah i mean most bootnecks that i know uh, even paris they have a slight form of uh hyperactivity or adhd they've got to keep even when they leave the service, they've got to keep something, you know, there, keep them busy. Because they stay at home for so long and they're like, no, nah, I'm bored of this, I need to go and do something. So majority of the guys just keep going, don't they? That's it. Keep jumping from thing to thing. Yeah. So 
let's delve into a little bit about you mate so uh growing up in in south africa and being born in south africa and going into the boarding school give us a quick uh rundown on on that because that's quite an alien thing to uh a lot of people in the uk uh yeah it's um it was a government school so nothing nothing you know hoo-ha about going to private school but it was boarding and all all guys so mainly sports orientated uh the school was obviously pretty keen on your academics but i wasn't really an academic back in back at school i just wanted to be outside so i didn't really focus too much on my school work um but yeah sports orientated so I played lots of sports rugby cricket water polo as a as a boarder it was compulsory to to play sports anyway so but it's yeah not too not too dissimilar from the military sort of lifestyle you're with your mates 24 7 uh, that camaraderie that you get and then uh, yeah you just make make friends that you're going to keep for life there really and yeah also this was back in the day so it was quite tough going through your first sort of couple of years of of school um i actually when I got to the Marines for training, I actually uh, found that a little bit easier than the first couple of years in boarding school. So it was a good stepping stone. <laughs> well, that says something, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, times have changed. That was that was a hell of a long time ago now. So I'm getting on, Brett. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's So that's quite a mad one. So what? Uh, how old were you when you actually went off to boarding school? So I would have been 12 years old at the time, yeah. And, um, yeah, the interesting thing, like I mentioned earlier, about the Milner School. So Lord Milner, um, I can't remember the dates when he came. British guy, obviously, came from the UK and came to the SA. He decided that he wanted to turn South African men into, into English gentlemen. So we were taught those sort of manners and discipline from sort of your first day at school. So you always have to greet people, all the, the new waited doors, um, Things like that. you have to sort of clean after yourself, uh, buddy buddy system. Actually, also in the in the hostel as well, which was quite good. So yeah, uh, there's six schools. I can't really remember the other ones, but uh, unfortunately, not all of us turned out to be gentlemen. <laughs> oh no, is there a few uh, stories of Milner boys like going on doing some random stuff? Is there? Yeah, but none. Yeah, none that I probably want to mention on here. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's another story when I'm back over. We can uh, yeah, get a few words in. That's another whole podcast. Yeah, that's that's the censored watershed version, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So as you said, like it sort of it does sound like that really teed you up quite well to going into the military. Was that something that you thought about when you were at boarding school when you were young, or is that something that developed later on? Uh, yeah, it was only later on, actually. We had um, a good friend of mine who's actually st- still serving para at the moment. He was training for P Company in, in our last year at school. And even even myself at the time, I thought, are you, are you fucking mad, bro? What are you running around with bricks in your day sack for? I mean, what? why would you want to join the army or the British army for that fact? And then, uh, yeah, so it wasn't even a thought at the time when I was at school. Um I'd, only when I got to the UK did it cross my mind, and luckily this never happened. But I walked into a army careers office in Carlisle when I was in Cumbria, and I went to the um, recruiter. I said I wanted to join the Army Air Corps, and he was like, oh, "Okay, cool, no worries, minimum of four years." And I was like, "Oof, four years is too long for me, pal. Sorry, I'm out." And that was it. That was it. It's mad. <laughs> that was it. Then yeah, but then it was always from then on. It was always in the back of my mind. But well, oh, maybe I should give it a go. Maybe I should give it a go. That was, but, that yeah, was the hindsight. Seed. Yeah, the seed was there, but I'm glad I. Uh, no offense to any Army Air Corps guys or or women, but yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I halted on that one. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when you were, so you say you weren't focused on the military at that point what was the aims the aspirations did you want to go into wildlife was that a part of your life then obviously being south african wildlife is a massive part of your life anyway but at school what was the what was the vision where did you want to go um uh, school yeah um school was just golf and rugby and then uh, i figured i'm not going to be a professional rugby player i was too small at the time and not that good a player i mean i could tackle but i wasn't that great 
So it was just golf here. My plan was um, to go to America and play professional golf, get into the college then and try and make it on the circuits. Um, I also had, I don't know, it's weird, it's like a, a mix between that and becoming a game ranger. So I had this, the golf on one side and then I thought, oh, well, if I don't make that, then I want to be a, a game ranger or like a guide in the bush. So the wildlife was always also there, but I was totally focused on the sport at the time. And then um, like most golfers in South Africa, they're spinning their stories about how their career started. And most guys were like, well, you need to be sort of the top five players in the country to make it. And you need quite a lot of money to invest into your career, which I didn't have and my family didn't have. So that's what I thought. Now, no, you know what? I'm just going to go to the UK for a couple of years break. I don't know what I want to do. So that's how I ended up just going to the UK and basically pissing around for a couple of years. But it was it was totally worth it. So when you uh, that's that sort of brings us timeline brilliantly up. So you've you've arrived in the UK. Um, obviously, culture is is very different, but there's a lot of similarities yeah. there as well. Um, were you working and studying, or were you mainly just pissing it up? What was the uh, what was the aim? Just sort of yeah, it was it was one of the they are typical eighteen nineteen year old South African or Aussie that rocks up in London, bar jobs, waiting jobs, uh, working and walking about. Oh, yeah, that, exactly. If you're South African <laughs> Australian, you don't even have to fill in the application. <laughs> you just you so, just say can have a job. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, so I did that for a year. It was only supposed to be for a year. And I came home uh, that December, I think. And I still didn't know what I wanted to do or sort of study or anything. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to go back for another year. And I ended up doing, uh, you're working on those summer camps. You know, you teach all the kids to abseil and do archery and fencing and all that type of thing. So it was quite fun. Uh, but yeah, I was just, it was just two years of. Job, job to job and drinking loads of beer and chasing women and actually put on loads of weight and not yeah. good weight. So I'm sure that, that beer is coming handy a little bit later though, no doubt. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, talking about beer fizz, so you made that decision to join the Marines and what what really spurred that on? Obviously you said uh, one of your mates that you were at boarding school with um, went powers so why did you choose marines yeah. what was the driving force behind that yeah so i was um i was a pt at the time so i lost all that beer weight um and then i tend to get bored quite easily so i was bored of working in a gym and counting for a living so um i spoke to my friend graham who uh who was in paris at the time and obviously him being biased he said yeah join the paris of course and then he mentioned another friend of mine, Jack, had joined the Corps. So I got hold of him as well. So they obviously both bigged up their, both, their two regiments, so I was confused. But then if you go online, there's way more information about the Royal Marines and the Paris. The Paris is like, I'm sure, as you know, one paragraph and then like a three-minute YouTube clip where the Corps got like articles and articles and then had the full 32-week training but all in videos of each week so I watched every single video and that sort of made my mind up and then my uncle's also ex-parabat here in South Africa it's the equivalent of the parachute regiment there so I decided just to join the court to sort of niggle him a bit as well so yeah, <laughs> just to like, piss him off <laughs> yeah he's like of course you got to join the parrots I was like yeah I don't know Got to have a bit of uh, education to join the court. Maybe I'll go that way. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, jokes aside, um, obviously I worked with the Paris. They're a bunch of, of cool guys. So I enjoyed my time working with them for sure. Yeah, definitely, man. Like, I, I think it's one of those, I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast. Like, there's obviously that massive rivalry between Paris yeah. and X, but yeah. at the end of the day, it's like, hell. Yeah, it's it's two different, very similar roles that are both done extremely well. That there's no other way of putting it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and they're animals. Yeah, so. Yes. Yeah. 
So uh, awesome. So this is probably a good time then. Why why go Royal Marines? You know, obviously you grew up in South Africa. You're South Africa born. Yeah. Um, obviously they don't have a what you would describe or what a British person would see as an army, uh, navy, air force. Mm. They have a defence force. So it's 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 a little it is, bit yeah. different. Um, and it's a little bit of a different structure and a different way of doing things. But what was the the driving force between going uh, over to the Commonwealth uh, rather than going to yeah. uh, South Africa National Defence Force? Uh, yeah, the lo- sort of local military setup, um, sort of post ninety four, they the funding isn't really what it used to be. So. Unfortunately, the training, sort of the caliber of training and and soldier here at home is not is not as good as it used to be back in the day. And also, um, no one here is at war. We're probably ever going to go to war ever again. So, I mean, we've got. I don't think Zimbabwe is going to try and invade us anytime soon. So, the drive to sort of go overseas was number one. I always thought the Brits, and I still think the the British military are the best trained guys in the world. Probably because they have no money. So if you've got no, you've got no money, you don't have the best kit, you've got to improvise, and that makes a good soldier, I think. And then also the drive was the only reason I, I wanted to join the Marines was to go to Afghanistan and fight or Paris. That was it's not only just to, to join the military, but actually to go on tours and go fighting. So, yeah, hence why I didn't join here, because I would have joined up when we've got – sort of equivalent which are called the the Rekis. but uh yeah i think they were going into the congo now and then but uh nothing much going on operational wise so hence the move to the uk so yeah i think yeah, that's, that's, that's a really really interesting point like i think a lot of people overlook that about uh pretty much the only like natural commodity that the british people have ever exported is military skill um and what i mean yeah. by that is is we've got no natural resource so where you can get a country is built upon its natural resources and if you haven't got oil you haven't got a lot of wood you haven't got any iron you haven't got any diamonds then what do you do um, um what britain done and why they became you know at one point the biggest empire in the world yeah the empire was that simple fact of exporting what they were good at and that was scrapping you know and as you say Every single one of those, uh, like battles, wars, conflicts, however you want to describe them, they're all fought on a shoestring. Mm. Because Britain's such a small place, yeah. everything was fought with an expeditionary force, which meant that you had to do everything with the bare basics. And if you can do the basics well with the basic kit, as soon as you get your hands on one decent piece of kit, there ain't any chance in stopping you. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Awesome, mate. So you were you were rolling through uh, training and you said that some of the early parts of training were not as tough as SA boarding school. So um, how did you find training as a whole? No. Did it get harder? Was it was it similar all the way through? No, no. Training, training is, of course, pretty nails, pretty tough. Um, I was fully expecting to get like filled in on day one, like you normally like we were at boarding school. So. Obviously, that's not allowed. So that, yeah, that's that was the that was why I found it easy because I actually literally thought we're just gonna they get thrown in thrown into the dorm or pillowcase over the head and just get filled in for the first few days. But so that's that part sort of calming down a bit. But yeah, training was, I mean, as you know, it's pretty cheeky but progressive. So uh, the later stages were definitely enjoyable because of all the skills. I mean, it was like. This is a little childhood dream, isn't it? Getting taught all these skills, cowboys and Indians. This is for real, which is great. So, but yeah, training is by no means a breeze. No, I think that's that's an important thing. Like a lot of people do ask, like, how was training? How did you find it? And I think that's a great way of of describing it. Really, is it, it is cheeky. It keeps you working to your maximum potential every week, but it's progressive. So, you know, they don't expect you to be a underwater knife fighting expert when you start, um, or well, or when you leave. But you know what I mean. Like they do build you up slowly. Um, yeah. 
and and it's one of the best sort of training institutes in the world in terms of like they can take a bunch of 60 misfits that don't really know <laughs> ask from elbow true. like they most of them are pretty solid but just a bit more in between the ears than a para um and that can run in a circle and then 32 weeks later they're thinking for themselves they're they're you know operating individually operating as a team operating as a company um and handling some very sophisticated kits so when you look at what they yeah. do it is pretty impressive it is yeah thinking back now at the time you, you don't give yourself enough credit really so uh, and it's only when you yeah, leave like the thinking back now i think the the yeah, <laughs> the prmc was probably physically way harder than because i mean for me at least i was like a full-blown civvy obviously like everyone else and i doing all this military fizz which i didn't I think the furthest I'd even run before PRMC was like six miles, maybe twice. I was, I think I made the, yeah, I made the mile and a half run by like one second. I was, and I was like, oh crap, I need to pull my socks up here. Yeah. And then just, and then coming fresh from SA as well, breaking the, breaking Peter's pool, getting the ice out the way, getting dunked in there. I was like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> so PRMC for me was yeah, uh, a wake up call. Um, yeah, and I found that, those few days were way harder than the actual 32 weeks because it's progressive like you said before yeah exactly exactly so what year did you go through training or pass out of training uh passed out august 2011 all right so literally it was getting very kinetic in the middle east at the time of your passing out then yeah troop one two five yeah awesome so in your in your training, like I know when I was in training in 2012, so a year after you, it was very geared toward Afghan. Um, everything yeah. was geared towards Afghan. Ours was like almost a little bit more because we were like the they knew the new MTP was coming in, and it was like okay. we were like one of the last couple of troops to go through with like the um, the usual CS95, and it was a weird sort of like transition point where some of the nods lower down were starting to wear it and stuff like that and it was like you are the last ones going to afghan and things like that and then it we ended up being um bcrs like battle custody replacements um on this and never actually going but it was it was very heavily geared towards afghan everything was related to that type of conflict was that the same when you were going through was it a little bit more generic or Uh, did you know you were going essentially yeah, no, it was well. None of us knew we were going because, you know, as you know, you don't know what unit you're gonna gonna get to after training. But yeah, everything was was definitely focused around going to Afghan. Um, field exercises were well. You knew, if you were in Afghan, you would do it this way and not this way. And you know, training it sort of evolved solely around Afghan, which was, I guess, beneficial for the guys who of us who actually got out there. Um, and I can totally understand. I mean, what's it went on for 14 years? We were in Afghan, wasn't it? But uh, quite funny. I remember our stripey one morning came out of the, the team office and he went, "All right, lads, basic training's over. Commander training's over. You all can go home." And we're like, "What? What are you on about?" It's like Ben Laden's just been killed. It's like, you know, fuck off now. Fuck it out. We're like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> what are you gonna do now?" So. But yeah, yeah totally, uh, cancelled. Go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all cancelled. That's index. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. But yeah, it's, I remember everyone was gunning for 40 commander near the end of training because we're like, yeah, 40 commander, they're going to Afghan next. It's all like the top blokes. Are like, oh, I'm putting my chin in for 40. They're going, you know, they're going out. But yeah. Not everyone got the unit that they wanted to go to. So. No, that is the way. So where uh, once you finished training, where did you go? Uh, four two. I actually, yeah, I put in for four two. Got to four two because I knew they were going on the tour after that. We we actually just missed the forty commander tour, so I put in for four two. Went there with a few other guys from training, um, and then I think it was about might have been two weeks or a month. After arriving at the unit, they were like, "Yeah, let's uh, your guys' Afghan tour is also can- is cancelled, not also cancelled, it is cancelled." So we were pretty serious about that. 
because everyone was sort of geared up thinking we'd, we'd have a chance to go, even even maybe being a BCR. But yeah, it was uh, that whole tour was sort of shit canned, as they say. Yeah, and I think that's that's a difficult one. That's something that a lot of people either don't think about or do overlook. Um, there's a big mental side to passing out of training, but also getting yourself ready to go and do something like that. You know, yeah. it, it's the job you train for. It's the job that a lot of people join to do. Not everyone, but, they, you know, it's it's one of the contributing factors or it's something that you have to accept as part of the job. Yeah. Um, how did that affect you when you were told? Because I know how it affected me. Like I was borderline <laughs> devastated, but also slightly relieved in a weird way. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realise that I was relieved until years later. Um, all the way through it was a frustration then it was only years later that I went no actually yeah I was a bit relieved you know um how how did that affect yeah, yeah. you uh no I was I was pretty gutted about the whole news actually because I mean like you say you've been training so hard to get I mean you're happy enough to get your green beret so that's great but then what's after that you get to your commander unit then you want to go to the next thing so the next thing was a tour which I mean a lot of guys because Afghan's still going on, everyone's like, I need to get a tour, I need to get a tour, I need to get a tour. Um, so, yeah, I was quite gutting. Um, but, you, I mean, you get over it and you're like, well, I've joined at this time, I passed out at this time. It's, you can't control when you pass out, when you join or whatever, you know. So, um, yeah, take take all the, oh, you're just a sprog on the chin and just carry on. Yeah, but that's, that's where it. I reached out to, to my friends who were still serving and um, – uh, my para mate Graham, who he was at one para now SFSG for I think he was there for about 12 years. He actually said, and I didn't even know about the unit. He said, "Oh, we've got Marines here. Why don't you, you put your chit in or put your papers in to try and get to this unit?" So that was my thought, not top of the list, but second, first was trying to get a specialisation, so I couldn't get pinged, and yeah. then <laughs> the next step was to yeah to uh, try and get to where he was, uh, one para, which is now uh, SFSG, because they were still going on tours. So the hope of going on tour wasn't totally gone out of my mind at, at the time. So so in your, in your um, that that's a nice little uh, transition. It's almost like we practice this. So in your uh, sort of <laughs> mission to pick a spec um, and avoid that ping, yeah. for, for guys that don't know or girls that don't know, in the Marines, um, I think they call it DSS, but it's essentially everyone calls it a ping. Yeah. Um, after you've been out of the box, they say you're supposed to have 18 months to two years, but lads get the yeah. ping after about three weeks. Um, so, yeah, it's essentially you're a GD when you're in the Marines. You're a general general duties rifleman first, then you always get a specialisation. They say you, you know, you're going to be at unit for about two years, then you can choose a spec or will ping one. But there's a lot of specs that are not as desirable shall we say as some of the uh, more exciting ones so not as many people yeah. do it so they ping people for it so things like the non the more non-combatant based stuff so the clerks the stores the drivers the signalers still incredibly important roles for fighting a fighting any kind of conflict but just not on what a bootneck would join to do um so how was yeah. how was your route into that? How did you choose? What did you choose? And did you get what you chose first? Uh, yes. Yeah, so my corporal in training, um, I won't reveal his name because he's he's doing some sneaky beaky stuff still. But he he when he was in the corps still he was a tank and he was telling me about uh, the spec which is heavy weapons anti tank. So but then you you know you hear that. All the stories are, oh, anti-tanks, mate, you're going to wait like two years, three-year waiting list. You're never going to get it. So you go on the old JPA, which is that people listening don't know what it is. It's that the online, I don't know what you call it, like intranet for the military where you put yeah. in your specs that you, you want. So everyone's like, yeah, sniper, ML, anti-tanks. So I put, I put mine, anti-tanks, obviously. I only put one in. And then – um. I actually ended up going to Norway. I think I'd, I was like a month or, or two out of training. And uh, the guys, I was in a different company to the guys deploying to Norway, but they were short of guys. So they said, who here wants to join K Company uh, to Norway? So I said, I remember being trained like, yeah, let's always put your hands up, always volunteer. And I was like, well, 
Norway. I've never seen like snow like that coming from Africa. So bang, hand up. Uh, anyway, then I started. I shared a tent. My tank commander was a tanky, and he had. He was actually coming back from that trip to Norway to head up the training at Limston for the tanks course. So he said, obviously, I cannot promise you a spot, but he gave me a top tip, which is nobody looks at JPA or they didn't back then. He said, I'm not going to look at JPA and see if you put your your cheddar in for tanks. Just ring me up or keep ringing the branch up every week because sometimes – Guys won't even rock up for the course. They won't even know that they're on the course. Sometimes the sergeant majors overlook things. So they'll be there on a Monday morning for a tanks course going through the names and be like, where's Smudger? And he's like, oh, he's not here. But if you called up that Friday, like I did, I called on a Friday. I said, are there any spots in the tanks course starting on Monday? And went, you're lucky day, mate. There's one spot open. I'll stick your name down. Get yourself to Limston. By the after the weekend, so <laughs> that is as lucky mad. as that. <laughs> Class classic bootneck admin that is that is genuinely yeah, classic bootneck is. admin. Like it, it is mad. Pinged, yeah, because yeah. the stall the clock or well, the storeman's been pinged. He doesn't want to do that job. So it's like ah ah this admin this is so shit this admin, and then they overlook things. So yeah, no, it's um, true. And I've heard of guys even rocking up on the day. Like just get, just rocking up at limps and going, uh, yeah, I'm here for the tanks course or mortars course. And they're like, yeah, mate, your name's not on the list. He's like, well, I'm here now. But, oh, you know what? Just hop on. <laughs> just jump on. Get get an SQ. Yeah, I mean, not? I don't know what it's like now, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, like I would like to say it's not still like that, but there's got to be an element. Like yeah. even in training, yeah. like I um I smashed my ankle up on fog and tour. And like I went straight to um, straight to sick bay. Uh, the swelling was too big for an X-ray, so I had to like literally ice it, ice it, ice it. Got an X-ray a couple of days later when the swelling had gone down enough. Um, and they're like, "There's no break. Uh, as long as the physio clears you, you you should be okay yeah. to join the the troop two weeks behind you." So I took that as yeah. I'm joining the troop two weeks behind me, not a problem. Went back into uh, sick bay, got it like iced, 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 could barely like stand on it. Um, yeah. Dosed up on cocodamol, physio came round and did like a like a range of motion assessment. Because I'd ruptured like all my tendons in my ankle, the range of motion was fine. And I'd taken so many painkillers, the uh, the pain was so fine. You were high. Yeah, <laughs> got through that. And they were like, sweet, you can go to Hunter to get to uh, the next troop rocked up to hunter the usual admin stripe was away it was a random filling and he went who are you what are you doing here i literally just said yeah i reported you know recruit whatever and uh yeah, I just yeah. reported and went i'm just here because uh, my other troops on 80 uh behind yeah. me i'm <laughs> joining them on friday when they get back and he was like all right sweet see you friday friday rolls around right. there you go well, <laughs> go <on>. troop. <laughs> and i went Hell. sweet <laughs> So yeah, yeah classic. Oh, Badman, Badman, as I call it. Anyway, it's Badman. got its perks, eh? It does. So uh, perfect. So yes. you managed to weasel your way in classic bootneck, no cuff to cuff yeah. fashion onto a tanky's yeah. course. Uh, how how did you yeah, find I'm it? Very lucky. Well, the tanks course. Yeah, was was it as easy as everyone says? Really. The tanks course is six weeks. We were we were sure almost every night. Bad yeah. I mean, obviously not. Uh, <clears throat> wink, wink. Not the days we were doing live firing. We obviously of, stay. Of course, of course. Stay back the night before. You know, what's it? The eight-hour rule, or whatever. No, it was a major piss-up. I think I was dating uh, a long-term girlfriend at the time, and she she's like, "I'm gonna dump you. you you're drunk all the time. What's wrong with you?" <laughs> Um, but no, the course is it's not it's not a duty attempt. I think it was two or three guys that actually failed on a course. It's the uh, the tank recognition is pretty cheeky. That was the only cheeky part. The rest is like apply yourself. It's obviously heavy weapons, but it's like any weapon system, as you know. Apply the basics and you can operate. It's fine. Um, and yeah, the guys on our course, everyone was pretty keen and switched on, so we sort of bounced off each other, and guys got good good sort of pass rates and things like that so yeah we we worked hard and played hard on that course so awesome. but yeah heavy wet 
definitely lived up to its name. <laughs> on that yep. Uh, literally, it's one of those courses. There's a few of them. But it's one of those courses down yeah. at uh, Limston that's notorious for that. You know, Moors is another one. Um, yeah. Six is notorious for literally it's just falling, as- oh. falling asleep and yomping around Woodbury. That's all they do. Uh, it's because the guys in six are so threatened that they're on six. They're like, oh, I'm going to push away the misery, take away the pain. <laughs> uh, oh, amazing. amazing. I still remember it was, uh, I can't remember the, the guy's actual name, but it was obviously um, Duty Sergeant or Colours. I think it was yeah, the Duty Colours. He came, we were still a little bit drunk in the morning, and he was like bombing down the drag. He's like, oh, lads, we were sure last night. And we were like, uh, yeah, colours. And he's like, held up this photo next to our faces. We're just like, wow, what's going on here? He's like, okay, yeah, crack on. We're like, what the hell was that? Yeah, got to the got to the tank shed, and the colours head of training is like, right, lads. Um, it's it's all funny and all, but if you guys did this, you just need to own up now, and we'll take care of it. But it's all good if you just own up. No no comebacks. Who stole the cannonballs? From- from outside the HQ building. And we were like, that wasn't us. <laughs> it ended up being the six guys. They were on CCTV. They were they were taking a swamp or peeing in the pond and they ended up stealing the cannonballs and sticking them under their beds. So, yeah, Wonderful. they Wonderful. pretty good at yeah. Oh, brilliant. So, well, what was your, uh, after your heavy wets course, uh, how did your career go from there? Where did you, where did you head to? Uh, I'm trying to rack my brain now, man. Yeah, so it was Norway. Then yeah, I was really lucky. Tang's course, pretty much straight after that, and then yeah, back to back to four two, because which was quite lucky as well, because I know after some courses guys put in for their previous unit and they get sent elsewhere. Uh, back to four two, and then I think we did an America trip. Yeah, we did an America trip. Um, what do they call black alligators? Yeah, was that that was BA so that thirteen, was wasn't good. it? That was no, that was was it two thousand twelve, I think. In twenty twelve, yeah. but I think they called end, it BA twelve. Yeah, end of two thousand twelve. Yeah, yeah, November, I think October, November. Yeah, because I got was to, that, that I got to K Company. Uh, must have been like September, October, September of twenty twelve, and that was my first trip. Okay, was cool. uh, America? Yeah, yeah, yeah. would have been. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was a so decent was a trip. And then, uh, yeah, then I think straight after that that trip, I put my chit in for SFSG. What I'd, I'd been putting my chit in the whole time. I'd been pestering the tanks branch again on like a weekly basis, bringing him up. Uh, Gaz Reed, I think his name, he was in charge. He's like, yeah, get me to, S- to San Athens. He's like, nah, there's no space. I just ring him up every week again. He's like, I'm getting sick and tired of hearing your voice, Greenstone. I was like, I'm going to keep calling you until you get me to St. Athens. But he was like, obviously going, you need to get recommended by a sergeant major. You can't just ring up. You need to be like sort of squared away. I was like, well, I've, I thought it was squared away. But yeah, assistance uh, paid off on that one. Again. So- you uh you got down to SFSG, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um kept pestering the tank branch and my sergeant major and uh he'd already put in a recommendation for me anyway, which is great. So uh yeah, so the persistence paid off and then I ended up going to SFSG I can't remember the exact date, but it was two thousand thirteen. I think it might have been June. I don't know. I can't remember the actual date, but it was 2013, uh, around there. And what, did, so, yeah. what, uh, what sort of trips and uh, deployments did you get out of SFSG? Uh, yeah, so that was a pretty whirlwind draft. So parachuted into St. Athens, <laughs> straight into field firing, then did um, pre-deployment training in Oman for, I can't remember how many weeks, I think it was like a couple couple of months, eight weeks or something. And then, yeah, straight on a tour to Afghan after that. Uh, did a tour in Helmand uh, with the target teams and uh, Rigo. And then after that, straight back to 4-2. So, yeah, it was a quick, well, I say quick, 
um, it was a good uh, good draft. I enjoyed it. Would that would you say that was your? Because a lot of guys, especially right now, the way the call's going, uh, yeah. essentially everyone's trying to get out of brigade. Um, and back then, when we were in, and sort of like now, it was one of those that's considered one of the drafts yeah. to get. Is that still was that the yeah. case at your time? Were you say that's the best draft you had? Yeah. Oh yeah, by far yeah. Um, guys were there were loads of chitting to uh, to try and get there because obviously the lads were still going on tours and they were doing quite a few rotations. So it was definitely definitely one that guys were trying to get on. So I was lucky enough to to get in there. But yeah, when I first arrived, I mean I knew uh, they would only choose a few of the new blokes to go on on ops. So I actually really dug dug deep on the field firing and PDT to sort of show my colours there and then get get chosen to actually go on, go on tour. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to get out with the lab, which is great. Awesome, mate. So we've still got loads post uh, post bootnecks to sort of get get into. So let's not harbour too much on uh, – we can yeah, chat yeah. all day about, <laughs> about more drafts, but um, let's try and let's roll up and sort of – curtail the whole core thing where where were you when you decided to leave um and how did that come about and and why did you leave yeah so i put my when i returned uh, from svg i went back to 4-2 uh things sort of went stale so i thought i'd put my chin in to join the australian commandos so i got accepted there did all the interviews and oh, interesting. They, yeah yeah um I mean, I try and keep the short. There's a lot of parameters involved, but um, we're on another America trip. Uh, when I returned from that, I think we went to New York. Uh, but when I returned, the Aussie guy, I'd opened my email and they'd said, um, sorry, before this, they'd said to carry on your application for the uh, transfer to, to Australia, you need to resign from the UK Marines. So I said, yeah, no, no worries. Put my chair in, resigned. Went to the States. Came back from the States, opened my email, and then the guys from Australia said, oh, sorry, mate, we're not taking any more overseas transfers. And I was like, you fucking what? I've just resigned so I can carry on my application. And they said, well, there's nothing we can do. So anyway, I went to my sergeant major. He knew the score. He knew what was going on. And he said, mate, don't worry. Your chit's been voided because you haven't had your COs orderly within 30 days. Um for those listening, that's, uh, you need to have a sit down with your commanding officer of the unit and he asks you why you're leaving and tries to convince you to stay normally. I hadn't had that. So he said, your chit's voided, you're in the clear. So I was like, I got out of that one. You know? Ideal. So this is great. So I took a bit of a breather. I was like, you know what, I'm going to go on one of these kayak trips. I did that devices to Westminster kayak thing, which is you just hike for three months, basically. Um, and then a bit of downtime. So after that, I was like, right, I want to join the SBS. So I was like, right, to HQ building. Sir, can I get to the Astage? Can I get some briefing course papers? He's like, mate, you ain't going on any course anytime soon. I was like, why? He's like, you're leaving the core in six weeks. So I was like, what? No, that's not what. He's like, yeah, your chit's been in the whole time. So oh, yeah. No. Anyway, that's in the CEO's office every day. It was a, a palaver. So I ended up leaving within six weeks with no resettlement, nothing like that. But I mean, it was a yeah, it was an admin nightmare. But it is what it is. Um, so yeah, the natural transition from then, I was like, well, what am I going to do? I'll, I'll try the private security stuff. So went into that. And that that sort of it was a more of a a forced hand rather than a overall decision then to to get to get out. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it was a like I say every morning in the CEO's office, and he was pretty upset with the whole thing anyway. Um, eventually, came down to naval manning wouldn't budge on it. Obviously, they said, "Oh, you can uh, the last stand we can give you a last option is you can be a driver for two years, and then we can." You can go back to your tanks branch. And I was like, I didn't leave my country of birth to become a driver. I mean, I, 
I know guys get pinged for drives, but I was like, oh. after all of this, now I must become a driver for two years and try and get out of that branch, which is pretty nails anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember the last second last week, the CEO was like, mate, the only option you've got is to go on a Pathfinders briefing course and then go into the Pathfinders. So I, I did like panic fizz for a week for a Pathfinders briefing course. And then he got me on the on the briefing course. But then the CEO in charge at Merville Barracks, he said, mate, you can come do the briefing course, but you can't come on selection because your TX date or your leaving date is four days before selection starts. So you're technically a civilian doing a Pathfinder selection. So we can't do that. You need, you know. need a five-day extension. So I went to Naval Manning and said, I need a five-day extension. They were like, no, we're not budging. And I remember at the time they were doing it because I remember lads were putting their chits in to try and get promotions. And Naval Manning were, were like, we're not having it. If you put your chit in on this date, you are leaving 12 months from now on that exact date. So... Madness, but sometimes things happen for a reason yeah yeah that's it you know it's it's one of them i guess at the time it meant and it was a huge uh a huge factor and then years and years later now it's less of a factor yeah. it's more of a ah oh, that's a shame but look what's happened since yeah. so let's yeah. uh let's go into you left you left the core you head back home uh sorry you get on the circuit you do a few different bits here and there um, when yeah. did you settle on Exped Orange, uh, the Orange River Expedition? When did that come up as a thing, and when did you start doing that? Yeah, uh, that was, I think I'd, I'd been doing the maritime CP stuff for just over a year, and I was, I was so bored of it, man. It's just one of those jobs where you just have to be there. There was, there's like no substance to, to the actual work. Um, yeah, and I came up with the idea standing on the bridge wing of a gas tanker sailing towards the Suez Canal. I like, oh, do something with a bit of a challenge. So, And I'd been reading Leveson Wood's book, who's actually an ex-para officer. He'd been walking the Nile. I thought, oh, what about walking the river back home? Because I hadn't been back to South Africa for a number of years. So, And I remember the Orange River being the biggest river in South Africa. So I thought, ah, oh, you know what? Let me pack my bag and and walk walk the length of the river, see how it goes. So yeah, that uh, that, that, that was happened. the that was the planning. <laughs> I'm gonna walk. That was the planning. It was a couple of weeks of planning, but um, what I've learned to this expedition stuff because everyone's like, oh, we well, haven't planned enough. I'm like, yo, that's the whole point. You want it to be an adventure, not an itinerized trip. So there was a fair bit of planning, but not too much trying to wing it again <laughs> yeah it's a case of make sure you could get water and food and then just hope you don't yeah. die yeah that's it and then the rest is yeah <clears throat> good so stories how, to tell how long did the the total total of uh the orange river expedition uh, expert orange how long did it take in total to walk the longest river in south africa uh so it was yeah, a total of 97 days it was myself and another Another Royal Marine, uh, Alex Davidson, he joined me. So it took us yeah, just over three months. 97 days of walking. Yeah. Well, I mean, we how, had some days off, obviously. But yeah. How, how <laughs> were your feet after that, mate? Surprisingly fun, actually. Oh. Even in the beginning, strangely. I had, uh, I think I had two blisters the whole trip uh, on the top of my baby toe on my left foot. I remember correctly or no one on top one on bottom that was it it's amazing isn't it when you can when you can buy boots that are actually decent and they fit rather than what's just given to you how how well your feet hold up yeah yeah and I had um for the last sort of stretch in South Africa which was pretty flat I had um I still had my issued boots the lower zephyrs which are like basically trainers with ankle support so it's like walking on clouds so my feet were, were fine at the end. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So was that was that one of your sort of your first big expeditions? Is that what sort of has, has built the bug of being in the bush and spending that much time? Yeah. Yeah, actually um straight off straight off got some leave after 
um, Afghan to another mate of mine who's also um, in the core. He's still serving now, actually. He's from Manchester. He came out with me here. We actually kayaked down the Vol River for the... I can't remember, was it 354th birthday? No, 350th birthday of the core. So we're like, oh, we're going we're gonna to kayak 350Ks. So that was when the bug sort of got planted for the expedition stuff. And then, yeah, the, the expert orange was to raise funds for veterans for wildlife. So that was the main sort of undertaking of that trip, but also for myself just to like kind of reset if you can put it that way, and uh, do something a little bit adventurous while I, I'm still young enough and and uh, able-bodied enough to do stuff like that. Get those stories, as you were saying. That's it, yeah, yeah. That's and for I, the grandkids. Yeah, I, th- I think that, like, if we tried to bottle that whole um, Exped Orange, we could do an Exped Orange um, podcast. Uh, maybe we'll have we'll have a chat about that off air and see if or, or do an expedition podcast and we can just chat about your different uh, stories for each one. Um, that might be a good one. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually um, in between doing stuff work now. I'm actually uh, I've still got my journals which I wrote every single night on the trip, which was actually the hardest. But I'm I'm writing that down into a, a book, so awesome. taking some time, but chipping away. Yeah, chipping away. Perfect, mate. So you say you were raising funds for Veterans for Wildlife. Um, yeah. For those that don't know, Veterans for Wildlife is an organisation that uh, provides um, essentially training and support to anti-project, uh, anti-poaching projects in South Africa or Africa itself. And uh, what they do a little bit different to some of the other organizations, they use the skills and expertise of veterans um, as volunteers yeah. to use their skills that they've learned in soldiering. So where obviously you started quite early with those guys. Um, how did you get into that and, and where did uh, that sort of develop from? Yeah, so um, obviously after raising funds for the charity, uh, the guys who are we were running the, the nuts and bolts of the charity, got wind of, of the expedition. And then um, I got a phone call from the CEO at the time afterwards. And uh, he knew that I was in the private security sector. And he said, oh, mate, what, what are you up to now? Are you going back to, to your old job or back on the circuit? And I was like, no, mate, I'm not going back. I was like, I'm going to try and find something new, something with a bit more substance, even if it's, it pays a bit less. And he said, well, we can keep you busy within the charity obviously the the money is not there but it's it's a, a worthwhile sort of rewarding job so i said well sign me up uh, and that was august 2018 and yeah i've been full-time with them um since then yeah just running basically uh projects on the ground i'm uh, basically the project coordinator is my title but i i go out with the guys on the ground and we, we deliver training or any sort of advisory advisory things to local reserves in South Africa and like I said earlier, Southern Africa. So, so yeah, you've, keep me busy. You've pretty much achieved uh, one of those goals as, as a, uh, when you were at school saying you wanted to go into be a game ranger if you didn't become a golfer. Uh, sorry, can't help you out yeah. with the golfer thing, but uh, pretty much yes, you've done it yeah. with the game ranger thing now. That's that's essentially what you do, yeah. but arguably you have a bigger impact than just being a single ranger because you're preparing teams of rangers all over sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, it's, I'm quite lucky actually. I mean, you're mixing the your soldiering skills with the wildlife around you, and also empowering guys that 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 selfishly work every day, sort of all year round, protecting the wildlife. So it's very rewarding work. So yeah, it's all worked out worked out quite well so with the, yeah. the an- anti-poaching stuff obviously i know it keeps you busy and you've got uh, ongoing projects yeah. here and there and you've you've recently um started on a new frontier see what i've done there it's good isn't it Whoa, so you're <laughs> i like what you've done there. You're doing... <laughs> so your your next uh your next big challenge if you like working with some of the other guys that we we know you're working on a um an organization called Frontier. Would you like to uh, just give us yeah. a quick rundown of what Frontier is? 
Yeah, so the full name is uh, Frontier Collective. So in essence, we we used to be called Veterans for Wildlife South Africa, which is actually separate from Veterans for Wildlife in the UK. We've just gone through a rebranding sort of phase now while, while we can with this COVID-19 pandemic going on. So, yeah, we are now known as the Frontier Collective and the reasoning behind the name is obviously with the frontier joining places together, wild places with people. And also we decided to drop the veterans because um, Africa hasn't really had a good run with, with veterans and the whole mercenary thing with the executive outcomes back in the day and guys setting up coups and all those sort of things. So Hold on. When are, we, you, are you trying to suggest that there's some sort of correlation between mercenaries and South Africans? I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> mate. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, the Elysium <laughs> all over and over. I've noticed that in the films, the, the, all the mercenaries are starting to become South Africans and not Brits. Yeah, they're, they're not <laughs> so, Brits anymore, so you've taken that yeah, mantle we, happily. <laughs> we are the original offensive mercenaries with their executive outcomes guys back in the day sorry, sorry so yeah that whole <laughs> no that whole stigma is is still around of course i mean um even our previous projects when we were going to cameroon and things um just to get those contracts sort of signed off it's going up to government level because of the name having veterans in it so hence the name we've changed the name and um yeah there's going to be a few changes um Obviously, with the COVID-19 thing going on, we can't deploy volunteers like we used to, especially from the UK and the States, uh, because of no travel. So uh, we're actually going to, myself and Andrew, who's, who's operating with me, we're going to try and fulfill those roles on the ground ourselves. And of course, in the future, we're not going to handle everything, but we will only bring out volunteers when that niche skill is sort of needed, like uh, guys who specialize in comms or you know, air to ground or intelligence, things like that, that we, or medical training to to a FPOS level. If we can't handle it, then we'll bring the guys out. But otherwise, that will we'll take the brunt of the work on the ground. So, Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, it's moving with the times, it's adapting, it, it's using, yeah. it, it's growing to the strengths as well. You know, you notice that you were being held back slightly with the, essentially the politics side of it, with the naming. So yeah. you've, you've adapted. Um, and you're moving forward, and that's that's really what it's all about. Exactly, mate. Yeah, it's, at the end of the day, it's down to the. It's not about us. It's, it's down to the the guys who are on the ground every day, as in the rangers, and then also the wildlife. So we we always focused on empowering veterans, empowering veterans back in the day, which is we still want to be able to do. But our focus now is more of empowering the actual rangers. So we're still going to be doing, in essence our core sort of business, which is handing our military skills over or watered down military skills to the rangers. But it's more of, like I said, empowering them, empowering their local community instead of um, ourselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's it, mate. You know, at the end of the day, it's all about protecting the wildlife and what can be better yeah. better done to, to facilitate that. Awesome, mate. So yeah. there's a couple more things I want to touch on. We're knocking on the hour now, so uh, people yeah. usually start getting bored of my voice by then. So we'll yeah, uh... probably. <laughs> <laughs> so something that you did relatively recently that you completely forgot about yeah. um, that yeah. was pretty mental, and this also raised funds was the the 24 hours of burpee challenge. Um, yeah. My first question is why. <laughs> my second question is why, and my well, third question is, are you an idiot? Why? <laughs> yeah um i think about and 90 minutes into that challenge i was also asking myself the exact same questions <laughs> um yeah I, I, it's weird how i actually did totally forget about that i think i just got rid of all those bad memories never to, to venture back there uh but yeah i chose burpees 24 hours of burpees because Nobody likes burpees, and I thought, you know what, if I if I can bang out burpees for 24 hours, people might cough up some money for the charity and <laughs> help us stay on the ground. So that was the plan. Um, and, yeah, yeah I didn't, uh, in hindsight, I didn't prep enough. So it was, yeah, it was a struggle. But, uh, yeah, I tend to like to throw myself uh, physical challenges, which 
eventually turn into mental challenges just to then I keep myself in check, basically. And if it's raising funds for charity, it's also a win-win. Yeah, it's all part of that boot neck. Uh, got to keep moving, got to keep achieving, and got to keep testing yourself, yeah. I guess, isn't it? I think so, yeah. So what's, uh, I mean, you, there's as we've gone through, there's so much stuff that we can stop and chat about for another hour or so. But what's the... Um, What's the future hold for you, Glenn? What what you uh, what you're hoping to achieve? What you're looking forward to at the moment? Obviously, post COVID. Yeah, yeah well, we're cracking on now with the with the frontier. We've got uh, loads loads of stuff in the pipeline, of course, post COVID. But um, myself and Andrew are heading out into the bush next week, actually, um, up close to the Kruger area. So we're helping out some guys there. Unfortunately. The reality on the ground now is because of no tourism coming in, there's obviously no money. So staff members are, are getting let go and um, some reserves in particular, they're having to get rid of the entire anti-poaching unit, which is, I mean, crazy, but they can't afford it. There's no money coming in. So we anticipate, yeah, even now in post-COVID, we're going to be pretty, pretty busy uh, in South Africa. And then once the travel bans lift we'll, we'll head back out to some of our old partners like uh, in Cameroon or the Zoological Society of London and things like that so and then uh, we've got a training package lined up in Tanzania with the Grimati Fund so that's so yeah, as soon as uh, the travel bans lifted we'll probably head to Tanzania first for a, a six week training package so we're training guys from civilians into fully fledged anti-poaching ranges out that can operate out on the ground incredible um yeah then myself yeah like i said that'll keep me busy um but yeah expedition wise i think uh before i do get too old and if i can get enough time off work <laughs> zambezi source to see might be on the cards so we'll see and another mental one eh? <laughs> yeah that one's going to be mental it's uh the orange was two and a half thousand. This one's three and a half thousand. So it'll take, and with the terrain, it'll take uh, slightly longer. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to book out a year out your diary, essentially. No, I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a good one, man. Going to be a good one. Awesome, pal. So before we sign off then, let's uh you've already you've already sort of got wise to me um because we said about it before i like to try and uh, yeah. throw those curve boys in there and, and get some pearls of wisdom from people but you prepared a couple of wells of wisdom because preparation prevents poor performance um yes. so come on then glenn give us your top tips mate what what would you essentially what advice would you give to anyone looking to improve themselves or or yourself 10 15 years ago oh right top tips oh my gosh no <laughs> my first one is uh, yeah if i could say this to myself about 10 years ago probably would have worked out even better is focus on commitment and not motivation because if you commit yourself enough to something the motivation will come naturally so just thought that was a good one yeah that's very good that's a great point you know a lot of people they look at the end goal um and just think right i'm going to stick to this to achieve that end goal and that works to a point but if that end goal is really 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 far away you need to focus on that journey and the motivation for doing it rather than commit to it rather than just focus on the end yeah i like that yeah and uh, if you're willing to sort of sacrifice enough to commit to it then like i said the, the motivation will just follow and if if you're not willing to commit then that that sort of i can say thing or subject or endeavor is probably not for you anyway so yeah perfect and then yeah another top tip mm. <laughs> <laughs> no this one I, this one i do quite often actually stop being nice to yourself <laughs> no, people might listen and go well, why are you saying that because um no the only reason i said is is because um i'm a guy who sort of i believe in, in not really saying too much but actually you know that whole action speaks louder than, than words but actions 
at least from my experience, always bring results. So, and then what tends to happen is if you don't get the results you want, then you start changing your actions. So, yeah, don't be nice to yourself. Carry on with what you want and keep acting on it until you get what you what you've set your mind to. Yeah, that's that's another one that I I like as well. Obviously, the whole mental health thing and don't put yourself down unnecessarily. But um, do you remember that yeah, sitcom yeah, Scrubs? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that sitcom oh, yes, about yeah. the doctors? Dr. Cox, you know, oh, dude, like the, yeah. the senior dude, he always said something. He was always shredding an absolute monster. And uh, oh, he always yes, said something yeah. that the the time that you look in the mirror and you're happy with what's looking back at you, you've lost the battle. And like, oh, obviously, okay. that's said in a joke. But that is literally, I, yeah, I yeah. heard that like 15 years ago. And that has stuck with me. And it's the exact same thing as you've just said. Stop being nice to yourself. Stop uh, being nice. Yeah, to look in the mirror and go, what an absolute mess you are. <laughs> Get a grip. Get a grip of yourself. That is awesome, Glenn. As expected, yeah. mate, it's been a was chatting to you. There's still so much we could focus on um, and so much more in depth there. But there's been some incredible little stories, some incredible feats for one person to achieve and uh, some great things for people to take away. If people want to get hold of uh, the Frontier Collective or yourself, what's the best social medias they can uh, they can get you on? Uh, so, yeah, Frontier Collective is, as it as it said on uh, Instagram, Frontier Collective. Um, we've got a website on there as well. And then my Instagram is glenn.stein, S-T-E-Y-N. It's Dutch. Dutch. Yeah, that's that's the bad side of yeah. South Africa. Dutch <laughs> uh, awesome. is in Holland. <laughs> no, awesome, mate, man. Thanks for having me on. It was uh, it was a privilege to be on the on the podcast. It was great chatting. Thank you very much, man. In these weird times where everyone's isolated and stuff like that. So yeah, that's thanks it, a lot man. for having me. Thank you for coming on the working title, mate. And uh, as you say, in these weird times, it's a perfect time for uh, people that have known each other, like even loosely like we have, but we've chatted more in yeah. text than we ever did yeah. in the K-Bar. So uh, exactly. thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah. You're an incredible bloke. You're doing some incredible work. Keep it up. Thanks, and, a, lot. Uh, Thanks a lot. for I'll speak to you soon, bro. Thanks for coming on the working title. Roger P. Jack. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Working Title, a podcast hosted by PJ Harris. Remember, do something that makes you just a little bit better every single day.